0: hi butch
1: hey hamish how are you doing I'm doing good thanks how are you i'm good i'm just sitting here in my home studio in los angeles uh enjoying a third cup of coffee
0: great um i thought a good way to kind of get into some of your techniques we to talk about how you approach recording different instruments so i know you're a drummer yourself does that kind of change your approach to recording drums
1: Uh, You know, as a producer, I think being a drummer has been immense help to me um, because I've always been aware of, one, the groove, how a track feels, and uh, also just looking at the overall arrangement. You know, I think sometimes if you're just the lead singer or the lead guitar player, maybe uh, it sounds like a bit of a stereotype, but maybe you're not so aware of everything else that's going on in a song or in a track. Um, it's been immensely helpful to me to, uh, to have been a drummer. Um, if you've ever seen me play too, I'm not very flamboyant. I pretty much stick to, uh, you know, pretty simple grooves and, uh, play parts when they're necessary, like fills and things to get into bridges or courses, um, and really sort of play to support the song. And, um, so it's not that different than how I would approach, um, telling what a drummer to do if I was producing him. Um, they're, they're kind of the same thing in some ways.
0: Do you have any go-to techniques for recording drums in terms of mics and techniques and things kind of over time? and I'm sure it varies depending on the project.
1: Yeah, when I'm starting a project, uh, if it's a band, um, I like to go see them play live and get a sense of uh, how their dynamic is and how they interact together and just sort of what technical ability and level each musician is at. And whether it's seeing a proper gig or a rehearsal studio. Gigs are always better when you're in front of a crowd. I think it's, um, you know, it's, you're more open as a as an artist, um, more more transparent. And um, uh, it's good for me to sort of just get an idea what, um, you know, how, how everybody in the band plays and how, how they sort of uh, glue together. Um, and then I just adjust it. Uh, you know, if it's a rock band and it's noisy, um, you know, I'm probably going to use... Uh, Microphones and things that are uh, a little bit more controlled. If it's more sort of mellow and open and or quiet, I can use uh, you know more uh, condenser microphones, you know, large diaphragm microphones, and and move it farther away from the drums and uh, and and go for more of a you know a room sound and space. Um, sometimes it depends on the song, you know, if it's if a song is really fast and there's a lot of fills and and cymbals and stuff, then yeah, then I, I feel like I need to get pretty tight on the recording of all the different uh, drums and cymbals just so I can really sort of control them in the mix
0: Has your approach to doing it changed much since kind of the smart studios days in the 80s?
1: Well it's funny when I started listening to records uh, as a producer um, it was really in the late 70s, early 80s particularly when I started listening to punk and new wave and because I felt a kinship to those bands, you know, I, when I was growing up and my mom played me the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and, uh, you know, they were rock icons and untouchable, you know, they were, uh, they were like gods on a different planet or something. And all of a sudden punk rock and new wave, uh, made me realize, oh, well, they're doing the same thing I'm doing in my band. And, uh, That's one of the reasons I really fell into producing is I I felt like if they can make records that sound like this, I can do that too, or at least I want to attempt to try and do that. Um, So it's, yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, there's sort of a a simpler attitude to punk rock than there is to... um, uh, a band like, uh, who's a, a good prog band, a Genesis, you know. I mean, I've seen Phil Collins play and he's incredible. Um, but, you know, I also saw the Ramones play and they were incredible in a different way. And um, those are obviously two completely different approaches to uh, recording drums and, and recording bands and uh, and they're both valid in their own way.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how your approach changes in terms of rooms as well. I mean to use one example. um, Obviously, did different versions of Nevermind at Smart Studios and at Sound City. How did your approach to recording uh, Dave's drums differ in different studios?
1: Well, I guess when I first started out, you know, as much as I um, read up on how to record drums, and you know, I tried I tried to find as much information as I could. Uh, when I started out engineering and producing, and this is before the internet. Um, now, now anybody can go on YouTube and you can look at a tutorial on how to record drums. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, and different opinions. But back then, I, you know, I just had to sort of figure it out. And when we started at Smart Studios, we had a really crappy mic selection. You know, mostly we had like a Shure SM57s and 58s. Uh, we had a couple. Uh, Sennheiser 421s. I think we had a couple AKG 451s. Um, And then later got a couple 414s. Um, As the studio got better and we got more work, we continued to to buy microphones, but uh, it wasn't, you know, we started the studio in 1984 and I I guess I didn't do Nirvana till uh, 91. That's when I met Dave, anyway, Dave Grohl. And um, you know, so we went to Sound City and they had a, well, two things, well, three things. They they had a great live room. Um, it just sounded amazing to, to, to put anything in there, whether it was drums or guitars or bass or vocals. And um, and they also had this incredible Neve console, uh, but they also had a really good mic collection. You know, they had a lot of tube mics and, um, uh, you know, some telefuncans and... Uh, You know, when I recorded him, I think I kept a fairly simple setup. I'm pretty sure I put a uh, 57 on top of the snare. I might have put a 451 on the bottom of the snare. Um, I think I used uh, 414s for overheads, much like I did at Smart. And I think I used 421s on the toms, much like I did at Smart. But I did put up a couple uh, U87s uh, in the room. And uh, those those also, you know, just by, because the room sounded so good, they were kind of bulletproof. You just basically bring the mics up in the mix a little bit, and it, and it just makes the drum sound amazing. The other thing I did, though, is uh, I used an extension that I had been doing at Smart where you take another bass drum, and you, you take the front head off of the, the bass drum, then you add another uh, bass drum to it, and you sort of put some... Uh, um, like packing blankets and things and tape it on there. So you basically you're extending the, the bass drum so it's longer. It's called a drum tunnel. Um, and then you can uh, put an ambient mic farther away from the from the kick to get more sort of woomph out of it. And I think I used two mics. I probably used maybe a, a D12 or 421 for the close inside kick mic. And I think I used a a Neumann Fet 47 that was maybe about six or seven feet away in the drum tunnel to get uh, some of the whoomp on the kick drum. But a lot of that is, uh, a lot of that sound is Dave Grohl's playing too. I mean, if you put any other drummer on that drum kit, or like if I got on there and played, it wouldn't sound the same, you know, and um, that that's part of the nature of uh, drummers too. They all have, uh, you know, a complete sort of, unique personality when they when they step behind the drums and that's what makes it fun to record
0: um was that drum tunnel something that you'd done from someone else or something that you kind of came up with through experimenting
1: uh it was something that we had at smart studios um and uh when i went out to uh, record in Los Angeles, uh, we used a, a drum company that had some extra drums for rentals. I didn't know what Dave was bringing in to record with. so We rented some extra snares. One of the snares they had, by the way, was a, a bell brass called the Terminator, which uh, that's what we that's what we used on the record. It just had an amazingly powerful sound to it. Um, but that was that was something I had been doing at Smart beforehand, and I think the the drum company that we uh, rented some extra drums from they had something like that I said do you have anything like a drum tunnel or something to to extend the the kick drum I said yeah I can bring something in so um, the other thing that I that we invented at Smart um, I guess maybe invented is not the right word uh, so many punk bands came in, um, and the drummers were not very good. They played really fast, like sped up polka beats and they would barely tap the snare and they would hit the hi-hat really loud. So it was always like, shh, you know, all the way through the song. So I took a couple pizza boxes cause we ate a lot of pizza late night at the studio, takeout pizza, um, and i cut a v slot in both sides and holes on the top and the bottom i punched through so you could slip it over the hi hat stand and put one in the bottom uh, below the hi hat symbol and then put the, the top hi hat symbol on and then you'd put the top pizza box through the hole through the stand and they would come down you could velcro them together and and then i could slide it around so the so the, the it's like a pizza cut out pizza section of v where the the drummer could play that the, the hi hat, and it freaked out a lot of drummers. Uh, you know, I would look at his plane or her plane, and I would move it around so so there was a spot where they could totally hit the hi hat fine. And it, but it, at first they'd all like, oh man, I can't play with this. And I go, yeah, you can. Just close your eyes and play. You're not going to hit the hi hat on the back side of it or on you know. There's, there's a certain area where you're going to hit it. And uh, it was amazing because it took the sound of the hi hat down in the in the overheads and the rest of the drum mics by probably sixty or seventy percent, you know. So so it just cleaned up the drums immensely. Um, and we used that for about two two to three years at the studio, and then uh, someone stole it. <laughs> and uh, I remember being really pissed off about that, but. Uh, it's like it, you know, it was one of those things that it took me a while to, to figure out how to build. And I, I was like, oh, I got to make another one of this. And I never got around to uh, making another one. But uh, it worked great, when, you know, when we actually had it at the studio.
0: So I guess uh, moving on to electric guitar, you obviously worked on a lot of albums that are very famous for their electric guitar sounds. Um, I guess in terms of layering electric guitars, obviously Billy Corgan did that a lot. And you did that a lot with Nirvana. Did you have any techniques for? Kind On of a recording and mixing a lot of guitars in the same tracks will make them kind of blend together?
1: Well, if you're going to record a lot of guitars and you're going to use them in the mix, um, you know, layer them, you have to be very careful about how the different tones match up. And um, uh, there's a lot of trial and error with that. Like you may start with a, a big sort of fuzzy tone, you know, like a a Telecaster or Les Paul into a a Marshall or something that has a pretty thick tone. Um, and then you, if you're going to put cleaner sounds on or even more fuzzy sounds, uh, sometimes you need to change the guitar, uh, change the amp. Uh, a lot of times I would change the mic, um, to get different sort of, uh, tonal sounds that would, that would work together. Um, when I was doing the Pumpkins, I... You know, we usually had a speaker cabinet set in the middle of the studio that we could plug any uh, head into, uh, you know, a variety of different heads we, we would use. Um, and I had four uh, different mics set up at all times um, on the cabinet. I think I probably had a, a U67, a, a ribbon mic like a Royer, um, or it might have been a, back then, I don't even know if they had Royer's, then, it, it, probably a Bayer ribbon mic, um, which are also great, great ribbon mics on guitars. Um, you know, maybe a 57 or a 421, and, uh, and then it's like a, another large diaphragm, maybe a U87, or, uh, you know, I, I can't remember, but... And then they would go to different... Um, preamps in the studio and so i could i could eq those all differently if i wanted to sometimes i would run them through the neve console sometimes i'd go through an api lunchbox i love uh i love api um preamps and eqs on guitars because they're very uh they're kind of more aggressive they're not as soft as neve and uh you can really pinpoint uh, frequencies you you most of the time, when you use those APIs, you have to boost at least two dB or cut two dB. You know, you can't do a half dB or one dB. So, when you start EQing them, you hear them right away, and the, uh, that's a really a good thing. Um, but one of the things I found is, rather than boosting, if you're starting to lay layer guitars, rather than boosting EQ, is to cut frequencies. Um, you know, if there's a particularly uh, bitey frequency in the you know, 1 to 3K or 1 to 4K, uh, maybe you just want to focus that on one of the guitars and, and cut that like by 5 or 6, 7 dB on the other guitar, and, and you can bring it up. Because sometimes if you start to get too much of that same frequency, uh, it can just uh, really mess up the track, you know, mess up your mix. Um so a lot of it is trial and error there's no you know I, I couldn't just tell you oh you can do this and do that you have to use your ears and listen to how they all are starting to sound together and uh, and then the same in the mixing um, a lot of times I find that when I filter guitars uh, like whatever the main guitar is I usually leave most of the bottom and the top in that but if there's extra guitars in there it, it, it doesn't necessarily need to have... Uh, low end extending all the way down to below 50 hertz you know you can cut it at uh, 150 hertz um, that cleans up that the bottom end as you start stacking tracks and the same with the top end you don't necessarily need everything all the, the sort of rizzy overtones you know from like 6k on above uh, so i so I'll, I'll it's it's again it's uh it's uh, sort of trial and error but i'll filter a lot of them and then so you can Put them in together, and you want to actually be able to hear them, too. You know, you don't want it to turn into uh, just, like, one gigantic frequency. Um, and so it, it's, it's trial and error, but uh, I think by, you know, using different guitars and different amps and changing your mics up and then, uh, and then actually EQing and filtering in the, in the mix process, uh, you can put a lot of guitars together and get a real symphonic sound.
0: If you were compressing the guitars, would you generally do them individually or kind of all together as a bus?
1: Um, A lot of times I'll run the guitars to a separate bus, a stereo bus. Um, Usually when it comes to the mix, I have, uh, you know, like four or five different sort of stereo buses. There'll be drums and then maybe another hyped drum stereo bus that's like super EQ'd and compressed that I can bring up, like a parallel compression thing. Um, I usually put the bass on a separate uh, sub-mix and then all the guitars go to one and usually if there's keyboards, all the keys go to one and then all the vocals go to one. So I I usually end up with like five different uh, 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 buses that I bring up, sub-mixes that I bring up that go to the final master bus.
0: Is the master bus then pretty minimal or are you doing a lot there as well?
1: You know, I've never been a big... Uh, Master bus uh, process guy. I know a lot of people are. Sometimes I'll put a little bit of limiting on there, or a little bit of compression. Um, I like to do that. You know, EQ and compression on individual channels, and then on the sub mixes, I'll you know I'll I'll limit the drums and limit the bass or whatever. But when it finally gets to the to the master bus, I've never been a huge guy to crush the mix. Sometimes when I was mixing, I would do two mixes. I would mix one um, that I knew was going to be sent off to the mastering engineer, and then I would do a separate mix and I would compress the shit out of it, call it the hype mix, to be able to play for people. So if they came Mm. into the studio, whether it was the band or the record company or somebody, so they could hear it, what it was going to sound like more when it was mastered. But that's not the one that I sent to the mastering engineer. I I would always send the 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 un the uncompressed un unhyped uh, master bus mix to the mastering engineer so they had a lot more control in the mastering and uh, I know a lot of people really like to use a lot of things on the bus I as I'm sitting here in front of my pro tools rig um, I do have uh, on my bus here sometimes mixing I do have a couple plug-in things that I use to hype up the uh, a mix. Um, but it, it depends on the music. Sometimes I just want to have a little bit of a, a, a gain compressor to make it, you know, sonically uh, in terms of loudness a little more competitive with everything that's out there. But I try not to go too far with it because, uh, you know, if you print mixes that way, you can't really undo it.
0: And uh, another band you've worked with, who are well known for kind of guitar sounds, sort obviously Sonic Youth. Were there any Um, experimental techniques that were used on that album especially because i know they're obviously big on experimental techniques as a band
1: well the most interesting thing about sonic youth is how they tune their guitars that's a big big part of the sound um when i first met them you know went to the rehearsal studio and i looked at all the guitars they had And, and thurston back then used to play a lot of uh fender jazz masters and um on the back of each headstock they'd have the tuning and i'd look at a guitar and it would be f sharp f sharp f sharp d d f sharp the next one would be e flat d e flat g g a like really tunings i'd pick it up and strum it and it they just sounded terrible um they were you know if you just played it with open strings and uh but that's how uh both lee and uh and Thurston approached it is uh, using a lot of different tunings to get some dissonance and uh, and uh, ringing strings that would ring in tandem to get extra harmonics and uh, and that was a lot of their sound. You know, I they had some stompbox pedals and uh, I tried not to do too much processing uh, when I recorded them. You know, I would just it, I would pick different mics. You know, I might use a condenser or uh, a ribbon mic or or a dynamic mic, um, but The main thing was I I wanted to stand in front of the amp and and see what it sounded like, and I tried to capture that fairly au naturel. I I didn't want to sort of change the sounds that they had coming. Um, And there was obviously some compression and EQ and things like that in the mix, and sometimes I'd add some effects, some extra delay or reverb, but for the most part I was very keen on capturing their sound.
0: Talking about um, unusual techniques as well, with your own band garbage when you're producing kind of albums or working on albums with them do you kind of see it as like an opportunity to try out weird things that you've been thinking about or unusual things or is it more of a kind of you just want to think about the music and go on with it kind of as simply as possible
1: well in garbage we've always been lab rat experimenters uh, duke and steve and i and and that's we love doing that i love doing that still as i'm sitting here in my studio there's a all these stomp box pedals on the floor in front of me and um but i'm actually using them i'm running drums through them (laughs) um but uh it's been part of you know what drives us as a band you know obviously we like to write songs that we think resonate sort of emotionally with people but a lot of that comes to shirley singing in her lyrics but you know, we, we like to muck around with coming up with crazy sounds, whether it's on a guitar or keyboard or a drum loop. And, uh, there's always some noisy things in the tracks that we do. And, uh, it's funny, we're not real, uh, clinical about it. We're sort of, we can be pretty quick and experimental. Um, we'll just start plugging things in when, when we're working on a guitar part. And if it sounds cool, just go, that's fine. Let's just do some takes, play, play the part you're going to play. And, and, uh, you know once we have a sound we usually record it pretty quick and then uh, i'll take that and, and chop it up and manipulate it even more in pro tools you know whether it's um, cutting it up or filtering it or adding uh you know strange ambience to it or running it backwards and or uh, layering it with other sounds um and uh, I mean, that's just part of who we are. It's, it's a band and garbage. That's part of our DNA. But it's part of our process. And, and I have to say, that's what makes the recording really interesting because uh, if it was predictable, um, it wouldn't be that interesting for any of us. So I think we, we enjoy those lab rat days.
0: Was that kind of process influenced by your time previously in the studio and thinking that you'd want to work on your own creative things in the same way?
1: Uh, it was. I mean, I think anybody I've worked with, you know, whether it was Nirvana or working with the Pumpkins, you know, Billy Corgan, he was a real gearhead. You know, the sounds that we got on Siamese Dream were, uh, we worked really hard to get. And a lot of that, I, I took a lot of those ideas and, you know, when it was applicable, I would I would bring those into garbage. Um, uh, the same with Sonic Youth, just looking at how they tune their guitars. You know, there, there's things like that you see as an engineer and as, as a producer that, uh you take with you and, you know, you use them on another session, um, when you can, you know, when it, like I said, when it's uh, applicable to what you're recording at the moment.
0: When recording a band generally, do you like to do as live a take as possible or do you generally kind of want to start with the basis of the drums and then build up or mixture of both?
1: It depends on the song, um, and the artist, uh, I guess typically, yeah, I would I would want them to record the song live. But really, what I'm doing is focusing on making sure that we get a good drum track. Um, if if we get great bass and guitar and keyboard parts, that's great. You know, you just keep them. Um, but in in the back of my head, I'm always like, well, we'll probably go back and redo those, and then I can really focus on getting it, the bass performance and the bass sound and getting a same with the guitars and the keyboards and vocals whatever um, but sometimes it's good to to have the band track live just to make sure the feel is good you know especially if you're starting with the drums as the main instrument that you're going to overdub things to you want to make sure that the, the track feels really good but I just finished producing a record for Silver Sun Pickups um, their new album Widow's Weeds and uh we started uh, doing some pre-production on very spare demos here at my home studio. And uh, as we sort of worked on them, I had Brian O'Bear um, put down some rhythm guitars on uh, with acoustic guitar and electric guitar. And uh, I, I realized that his feel sort of drives the feel of their songs. So when we went into the studio to start recording, that's how we recorded them. I referenced the demos that we made. And so I had, uh, you know, uh, tempos worked out uh, to click tracks. And some, in some cases, they were uh, a tempo map songs where the tempo speed up and slow down. Um, So I'd come up with a a click or some sort of percussion track. And then we, we tracked all the guitars first. We did all the acoustic and clean electric guitars and then we did Nikki's bass, and then we did Joe's keys, and we did the drums last. And uh, I think that the the album feels really good. Like I said, it, it's I, I realized that Brian's playing sort of drives how the band performs, and uh, they all the rest of the band really enjoyed playing to guitars that were finished. You know, rather than going and playing live and then everybody coming back and, and cutting them to the drums, I think even even Christopher, the drummer, preferred playing his drums once he knew, this is what I'm playing to, this is the sound of the guitar and this is the performance. So it was much easier for him to figure out all his parts and uh, and uh, and record them.
0: So I guess if you are focusing on that drum sound, take, obviously, Nevermind, which has that famous drum sound in that great room, where... The rest of the band in there with Dave kind of playing there with their amps in another room or was it done differently? Like,
1: Yeah, well we tracked Nevermind. We set Dave's drums up in the middle of the studio at Sound City and and then I brought in headphone boxes on either side of him for uh Kurt and Chris to play. But I ran their amps. I, I put uh Kurt's amp in the hallway um to the left side of the studio right before you come into the control room and then I put um, the bass the, the MPEG bass the SVT bass rig uh, in a little ISO booth to the right of uh, Dave's drums so they were the amps were not in the room and then I just cranked them up in the headphones so they could so they could hear them which was great because then it allowed me to I could turn up the room mics on the drums you know you don't have to worry about the bleed so much and uh, and, and it, it worked great in that, in that situation
0: have you ever done albums with bands all in the same room, kind of amps blaring into all the other mics?
1: I have, and, and there's a lot of uh, uh, good things about having bleed in tracks. I mean, it it, it does sort of glue things together. Um, you know, you have to be a little more careful about how you're recording everything. Um, you know, sometimes you have to build little ISO boxes around the guitars Um you know, And, and you, you tell them, okay, you can't crank it this hard. You can turn it up, but you can't be quite that loud. You have to listen back to everything and make sure that there's still going to be some control with the drums and the bass and the guitars and whatever instrumentation you have, that it's not going to all be crushed by uh, one particular instrument. Um, but then they also have to be aware that... Um, Everybody has to play really good because we're going for takes where the the sound is going to bleed into everything, you know. So if you make mistakes, there's there's a chance that might be heard in the overhead mics of the drums, or or vice versa, you know. The the drummer might play a bad fill and it might bleed through into the um, into a drum or into a guitar mic, you know. So, but I think that's good for bands sometimes to do that. It keeps them on their toes, you know, when they know they have to perform. At their absolute top, it's uh, th- that can make for exciting recordings.
0: And I know you mentioned the kind of ISO booths. Um, do you have any other techniques for working with bleed in situations like that?
1: Um, well, sometimes I would, um, like, I would line the amps up. Uh, like, if the drummer's in the in the middle of the room or in a corner of the room, and and you've got a couple of guitar amps and a bass amp, I would line them all up right next to each other, sort of facing. Towards the uh, facing towards the drums, and then I put uh, baffles between them so to separate them, and then I would also put one baffle up between all three of the amps between that and the and the drums. So if you so if the guitarist wants to hear his guitar, he's kind of got his own little area he can get in. You know, there's a baffle on the side of his amp that's that's keeping the bass and the other guitar amp out of his immediate vicinity. And he, he and I usually set the baffles high enough so if the guitar player is standing there, he can still look over the baffle and see the drummer play. But the, you know, the, if the amp is on the floor, it's gonna the basic sound of the amp is gonna be going straight into the baffle. And uh, so when you do that, you have to make sure you go to a studio that actually has baffles like that. And, in in any, any studio that, um, that records like that, they're usually going to have several different sized baffles, you know? Um, and, uh, if not, uh, you can always make them, <laughs> you get some thick plywood and you, um, you know, you get some Sonics or whatever, just some, uh, uh styrofoam or, any kind of foam, and you just glue it on there, and you know just to just to break down the you know the, the bass is going to go through. You're you're not going to be able to keep the bass from bleeding through. If if you're going to stop bass from bleeding, you need uh, basically concrete or you know really thick walls. Um, but it's going to cut all the high end and the in the mid range down, um, which where which is where there is a lot of information in guitars, and uh, it'll, it'll for the most part it'll keep it out of the drum mics.
0: Have you ever done any albums, kind of without headphones, using a PA or something similar?
1: I have. uh, There's a band that um, I just worked on a box set for uh, their earlier releases. Uh, It's a band I did at Smart years ago, Laughing Hyenas. Uh, They were assigned to Touch and Go and they were a fierce, fierce band. They played sort of bluesy punk rock um, and had a very tribal, heavy feel. And uh, we they used to track live at Smart, and um, and we we would bring a PA in. And the, I didn't know this they, the first session we ever did. They they loaded all their gear, and then they loaded this PA, and I go, "What's that?" And they go, "We want to set up the PA too." And at first, I was like, "Oh man, that's gonna that's gonna suck. It's that's gonna be a pain in the butt." But it was cool. Like I basically set them up and got all the tones, and once that was all good, then we set the PA up, and I ran the drums like the kick and snare and the toms into the pa and some of the bass and some of the guitar and the vocals and that was all recorded in the room with them when they were playing live so it was intense i mean it was just a crazy crazy sound very uh you know pretty harsh uh, because the pa could not handle all of the sound so it was distorting but then you would mix that in with the uh with all the microphones from the from the regular kit and the bass and the guitar and and uh, it just it gave it a real sound and um and they loved it and, and and those those records have a real unique sound to them
0: maybe you want to talk about acoustic guitar Have you had any um kind of standard techniques, favorite microphones for that over the years?
1: Well, I usually use condenser microphones and I like smaller uh, diaphragm condenser microphones. Um, AKGs are great. They're really, like a 451 is an amazing, uh, fairly prevalent, uh, microphone to use on an acoustic guitar. Um, I love these B and K microphones, um, also condenser mics. Um, I don't use dynamic mics. Um, I don't think they somehow translate the, the percussive harmonic, um, you know f- expressive finger picking very well so um, and the same with ribbon mics I think they, they just sound too soft so I, I find condenser mics to, to generally be the best for uh, acoustic guitars but a lot of that is um, deciding on what mic to use is listening to the guitarist play um, you know I don't usually mic the the open hole the open F hole I usually mic towards the about the 12th fret um, off the fret so we, so you're getting a little bit more of the harmonics coming off the off the guitar and I like to use uh, uh, I compress I usually compress uh, uh, the acoustic pretty quick so it's kicking down you know it's got a f- pretty quick attack and a pretty quick release uh, like if you're using an 1176 they're not they're not set to maximum attack and maximum release but both set pretty quick because I like the, it just to kick down a little bit of the strum so you get a little bit of that jingy sound, but then it right away pushes up the sustain. And uh, I've, I've got two or three settings that I use here that I go into a studio, and they seem to always work um, pretty well on a acoustic, especially if it's a, a rhythmic part, a strummy part. If it's finger-picking, um, whether you're using a pick or with your actual finger, and that's a whole different thing. You usually have to bring the gain up and I might change the compression and I might EQ it more. I might cut like low mids if I feel it's too boxy or, or upper bass. Um, but it just depends on the part, you know, the part that's being played.
0: Do you have any particular techniques for recording um, someone who's singing and playing acoustic at the same time?
1: Well, if someone's singing and playing acoustic, that can be tricky because you don't want to get phase anomalies. You know, if you just put a mic up and listen to the singer singing that, that sounds good. And as soon as you bring up a uh, acoustic mic because it's only, you know, uh, a couple feet away, sometimes there are, are weird phase anomalies and you have to move the one of the mics around. Usually, if, if I know where they're going to be singing, I'll, I'll just move the acoustic mic and you have to keep moving it and just use your ear until you don't hear a phase anomaly and uh, there's no real easy way to do that except um, trial and error you know you can't uh, d- just flipping the phase isn't always going to do it but y- you can really hear it if someone's playing a guitar and you have both mics open and just with your hand just move the acoustic guitar around you can hear the, any of the problems that are, are it, like I, what I call the phase anomalies that are happening
0: have you ever tried to do um, a project with just one microphone for both the acoustic and the vocal?
1: I have, and uh, that actually can be great. Um, it's it obviously it has to capture both, so you have to find. A place uh, where that microphone sounds good. In that instance, I like to use large diaphragm condensers. Uh, I've got a couple U47s here. I also have a couple mics um, that are large diaphragm that I can put in omni mode, so I can I can just put it about two feet from the singers. Voice down just to the point if they're going to stand up or sit on a stool where it's just above the guitar. And uh, and then you just listen to it. You go in the control room, and if you want a little bit more voice, you just move it a little bit closer to his or her, uh, you know, where they're singing. And if you want a little bit more guitar, you just drop it down a couple more inches, at you know, at a time until you get the kind of balance you want. And uh, I, I've done that a couple times here. I, I worked with uh, an amazingly... Uh, talented artist, uh, Christopher and, and, called, uh, never shout never. And we did some demos for his album here and basically put doing that, just putting up a U 47 and he just stood in front of it and played the songs and it sounded amazing. I was like, dude, we should put this out as a record. <laughs> I mean, part of it said he's a really good singer and, and great player. So like he did, he did everything in one take. And I was just like, wow, that sounds incredible. But, uh, that was the that was the way to do it. Just put up one mic and, and and move it till it it's the balance sounded good between the voice and the guitar.
0: Have you ever had any projects where you deliberately kind of were as minimal as possible in terms of recording techniques?
1: Uh, yeah. And sometimes it's I had to do that in the past. You know, I'd go to other studios and. Uh, you know, much like smart when we started, there's, they didn't have a great setup, you know, they didn't have a lot of channels on the board or they didn't have a lot of microphones and that can be liberating. Also, when we started out, you know, we had an eight track studio. So, um, you have to learn just to use whatever you're using, you know, the, the basic minimum, um, has to work. Uh, you know, you, there's no point in putting up 40 microphones if you're only going to record to eight tracks, you know, it's like you, less is more in some ways. And, um, it depends on the the project, though, and the band, but in, in general, I think the simpler you can keep your setup, um, the better you're going to be. You know, you're, the less phase issues you have to deal with, uh, just cable issues and all the different level issues and things like that. It's uh, The simpler you can keep it, the better when you can do it that way.
0: Yeah. I guess, moving on to talk about bass now, have you had any favorite mics and techniques over the years?
1: Well, I usually run a DI from the bass and I also like to uh, mic it with a sometimes a combination of mics on the amp it depends on what the amp, amp is using like I, I love Ampeg SVTs they're just for rock they're, they're amazing um, and sometimes I'll take the DI which will be straight out of the bass into the DI and sometimes I'll take the DI from the head a lot of heads have di outputs so you get the sound of the di also gets the amp eq and, and overdrive um it just depends on on what the song is like but uh i i like to use um large diaphragm uh mics condenser mics on um bass like i i but you know i'll, I'll use a, a, a u47 or a uh a u67 um Sometimes I'll use a Fat 47, which is a softer-sounding uh, mic. It's, it's not a condenser. It's a FET mic, and they're, they're thicker-sounding. Um, but I, I don't use dynamic mics. Um, when I have used a dynamic mic, um, I've sometimes used a Shure SM7, uh, which is a great mic, by the way. If you had to take one mic to a desert island that you could use on everything, that's probably the mic I would take, a SM7. I've used it on kick drum. Yeah, I've used it on kick drum. I've used it on guitars. I've used it on vocals. That's what Billy Corgan sang into on uh, Siamese Dream. That was a My Shure SM7. So it, it's a good mic, and, and I'll use it on bass every now and then. But in general, I like to use uh, large diaphragm condensers on the on the amp,
0: what kind of a distance are you normally putting the condensers?
1: You don't want them too close to the amp because, in order for the bass to develop, you you have to get back so the sine waves can kind of hit their peaks. Um, uh, when the when the bass player starts playing, I'll usually go into the room and, and cover my ears because you can feel the bass. You know, you don't have to have stick your ear into the cabin, especially if it's really loud. And uh, you know, I would say probably in the two and a half to four foot range. Um, and if you want to get, if I'm if I'm double miking it, and you want to get more of the growl, like if if there's a if it's a cabinet that has like a horn in the top or, or a smaller drivers in the top, and then a big like a 15 inch on the bottom, um, I'll, I'll, I'll mic that. Like I might put a, a sure SM7 on the top uh, and, and get that closer to the the smaller speakers so i can get more of the the upper mid-range and the top end if you want to hear more definition then i'll blend those two together um, you have to make sure that uh, uh, those are also the phase is good because anytime you start playing with the bass like that and moving the, the far mic back to get the bass they can very quickly get out of phase so and then i always record those onto uh, separate tracks so I'll, I'll put the di on one track and put the with the amp sound on, to, whether it's one or two mics. If it's two mics, I'll blend those together and put those on a separate track.
0: With the SM7, have you had any particularly kind of favorite preamps with it, vocals especially? Uh,
1: the SM7 has low gain compared to uh, a lot of mics, so you do, you're do you going to need to turn the preamp up. Um, I have a tendency to use that into uh, either Chandler preamps, which are much very much like Neve-style preamps, or APIs like I love um API preamps. Um they they're great on vocals and great on guitars. Um if I, the SM7 uh I think sounds very good in uh in like API 512s. Let me let me look and see what I have right in front of me here. Now, now what have I got? I've got a my lunch box is a uh no I yeah. <clears throat> i'm using a 512b preamp and a 550 eq so i'm using it i'm using a 512b preamp and a 550 eq and um that's a really go-to preamp eq for me um whether it's using a sm7 or anything at least in my studio here um that's one of my main uh, gain stages that i use let me also since i'm sitting right here i'm uh, My vocal chain here is, uh, it goes through a Chandler LTD-1, which is, again, very much style like a Neve 1073. Uh, And one of my go-to vocal compressors that I've used for 20-plus years is a Summit TLA-100. And I'm I'm recording with it right now. And as I talk, it kicks down 10 dB. Like, I'm not shy with the compression, um, there's something about the way the compression sounds in that particular compressor that's really soft and musical. Um, I've, I've used that on the Foo Fighters and Green Day and Garbage and Soul Asylum and Against Me and uh, Billy Corgan. It's like that. That's my that's my go to vocal compressor, a TLA 100. It doesn't always work on drums. In fact, I rarely use it on drums, and I rarely use it on guitars. Uh, but when it comes to vocals, that's my Favorite vocal compressor.
0: I think I read on Nevermind that you used U67 going into 1176 and LA2A.
1: Is that right? Uh, I think so. That's what they had at Sound City. They, Sound City did not have a lot of uh, outboard gear, but they had an LA2A and they had 1176. And the 1176 you can set to a faster attack and faster release for for quicker sibil, uh, for quicker consonants. Um, and then the LA 2A is obviously thicker, but it's got a slower attack and slower release. And uh, so you get the, the balance on both those. So it has a. It can catch the quick elements of a vocal, but then it also just. The LA 2A softens it out.
0: So I guess moving on with vocals, is it normally either a kind of tube, condensed mic, or something like an SM7?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll use pretty much any mic if a singer. Wants to use that. A lot of times I find that singers like to sing in specific microphones because they're used to the tonal balance and, and they can sort of hear it in headphones, you know, how their uh, voice is sounding. And, and, you know, how people hear themselves in their heads is quite unique. You know, how I hear someone's voice is completely different than how the singer hears it. And it's important for me as a producer to, to make sure they're comfortable in hearing um, what they're... When they're recording, they're they're getting a an accurate uh, sense of how they're sounding, uh, if that makes any sense. So, if they want to sing in an SM fifty seven, that's okay with me. You know, of course, I'd rather use a a big a tube mic like a U forty seven, or I also have a a fifties a, a late nineteen fifties Elam two fifty Elam two fifty, and it's incredible sounding. It just has this kind of uh, saturation in the top end that's, uh, it's hard to describe, but it, it sounds incredible, but I don't always use that. You know, I'll, um, I'll, I'll use whatever, uh, whatever's handy in a studio. Actually, um, we, at, at the studio where we do a lot of the garbage work, um, uh, there's a studio in Atwater just a few blocks from my house here called Red Razor and our engineer, Billy Bush, Uh, owns that studio and we do a lot of garbage recording there and he's got a couple great mics that we use a lot um yeah he's got a brawner mic which sounds amazing and he recently bought an old vintage m49 which has this great mid-range tone to it it almost sort of sounds like a a ribbon mic but it has a very pronounced bump somewhere between like 800 hertz and 2k and uh, but it's a pleasant bump and uh, it's really interesting sounding it just doesn't sound like any other condenser mic and uh, there those mics are hard to find I'm I'm glad he tracked one down somewhere because we've been using that a lot on vocalists at the studio but here at my home studio I use a U47 I've got some uh, I've got my Elam here which sounds great I've got some ribbon mics I've got some 57s and sure 58s which people like to use and you know that's uh, between those that's usually going to usually going to handle it here.
0: For getting people comfortable with kind of how they sound, do you have any tips for headphone mixes that have kind of worked over the years in terms of getting people happy?
1: Well, I don't like to make the vocals too wet. Um I find that that masks what they're doing if if a if a singer asks for a delay or reverb, I'll put a little bit in there, but I'll usually put the headphones on and listen to what they're hearing because I want I want them to hear themselves fairly dry just so they can hear their timing and hear their, you know, the, the vibe they're going for. Um, obviously sometimes you want a little bit of reverb or delay just because it's more fun to sing. Um, and then I usually will check their mix too so it's not too loud. You know, uh, some singers they turn their their voice up so loud, and I understand that they want to hear very clearly what they're doing. But uh, I also want them to be aware that they need to hear the track, you know, to just to lock in with their their phrasing and to make sure that their pitch is good. So, um, so I usually check the mixes, and uh, you'd be surprised, uh, <laughs> especially if you're sending a multi-channel mix to someone, you know, where, where it's a little they have their, they can do their own mix and the drums are on tracks and the bass is on one of the guitars and one of the vocals and I'll go and listen to it and, and the mix sometimes sounds terrible. It doesn't sound anything at all like the the mix that I'm listening to. So I'll I'll spend a minute and go through and mix it for them and then say, how does this sound? And usually they go, oh, that sounds great. Uh, thanks for doing that. Um, and, and that helps a lot. Um, I'm also, when I start, when I get a chain to record and I have a setting that I know is working for them in terms of their headphone mix, I'm very careful to use that chain every time they do a new vocal. So so the way they're hearing their vocal is the same in terms of EQ level compared to the band. Because if, if I call up another track and it's not set the same, if it's too low, they're going to sing harder. If it's too loud, they're going to sing softer. So once I know I'm getting good performances, I'm, I'm very, very keen on on making sure that the, all the way, even if we go to another song, I, I want to make sure it's exact same chain because I know that's where a good uh, where the levels are good for them, and I'm getting great performances. And I don't want to vary from that because I don't want them. I don't want to throw off their dynamic. Basically,
0: I think the last instrument we haven't covered is piano. Piano techniques for that over the years and kind of favorite mics. I mean, upright and grand and anything really.
1: Well, piano is a complicated beast because it's so incredible in terms of the harmonics and the, the tones that it generates and uh, I usually like to uh, whether it's an upright or a, a grand I like to lift the lid and uh, sometimes I'll record a couple pair of mics and I'll put two very close to the um, to right over where the person is playing uh, like an X Y pattern, so it's the the left mic is aimed a little bit more towards the lower side of the keyboard, and and probably a condenser mic like a a four fourteen or a B and K or a uh, you know I might use a four fifty one, um, but I like to use uh, condensers there, uh, and then I'm in in, in the inside the uh, piano. I will usually put up a couple mics too, and I generally like to use uh, a bigger diaphragm uh, condensers. Again, like a U forty seven or E Two fifties or two fifty one sound incredible on pianos. And uh, depending on the part, if it's a nice sounding room, sometimes I like to put up a stereo mic, mar- uh, stereo mic like a, a AKG C twenty four. Back about. Mm, you know, maybe 10 or 15 feet, sort of more from an audience perspective, and then be able to bring that up in the mix if you want to have the piano sound a little bit more ambient. I generally don't like to EQ pianos when I record them, but I will compress them. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll put a little bit of uh, limiting on the on the close mics and the, on the room mic just to uh, just sort of contain any of the dynamics a little bit if, if suddenly the piano player gets really hot. Um... But I don't really like to EQ until you know, it, the, a track is recorded. When it gets to a mix, I might EQ it. I might cut some mids or low mids, or I might uh, boost top end if it needs to compete with guitars and drums and bass and things like that. But um, I, I like to leave the piano EQ-wise as au naturel as possible until the very end of the mix when I, when I might change the sound on it to fit in with the whatever's going on in the arrangement.
0: I think that's all my questions, but thank you so much for speaking with me. All right, cool, Hamish.